So having looked at uh, the first story of Caleb, um, when we first hear about Caleb, um, as Moses sends the spies out into Canaan, we come to this morning's reading, which is um, after they've conquered Canaan and uh, the land is being divided. Oh, the land is being divided back up. So we come to Joshua chapter 14, starting at verse 6. Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers, who went up with me, made the hearts of the people sink. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly, so that on that day Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord has promised, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, whilst Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his, as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Can you hear me? That's a start. I certainly need your prayers this morning, because I must confess... When I received the email uh, some months ago now that I was going to kick off this season of heroes and anti-heroes, I then saw that actually I was to be speaking about Caleb. And I thought, my goodness, I've drawn the short straw because I'm really not convinced that necessarily everyone in the congregation has, ne- has necessarily even heard of, of Caleb. And I thought, well, therefore, I'd better actually probably structure something of a sermon that makes sure that everyone is up to speed and that blow by blow leads you through, if you like, the, the story of Caleb and, and how, of course, ultimately he becomes a spy working clandestinely in the promised land. But the fact is, of course, you've now seen the most amazing and accurate uh, cartoon um, it's so good, we could probably get Andy just to play it all again and we could all go, to go home. Um, and then, just to cap it, David has given a reading which I think pretty much nails it and has confirmed to you that Caleb stands out because he was holy for God. So that's it. That, that's pretty eloquently my sermon. Um, <laughs> I look to just glance at my notes to pick out some bonus material. So bear, bear with me. Uh, We'll see how we go. 
Actually, if I may, what I will do is just take opportunity to, to go way back, just give some context to Caleb. Because, of course, you know that the astonishing thing is it's the irony of, of how the children of Israel came to be in Egypt and ultimately delivered from it. Your mind goes back to those extraordinary years when Joseph was sold into Egypt and yet he became Pharaoh's favourite. It was God working in him through the Holy Spirit that enabled Joseph to manage Egypt through seven years of famine. And yes, Jacob and his entire household, 60 people in all, came to be part of Egypt. But they didn't just stay there for the period of the famine. We don't necessarily spot it, but the fact is they were there for 450 years. And at the time when Caleb was emerging, they had grown immensely. They were tribal. They were a tribal community. They still held fiercely to their origins, naming, if you like, from Jacob's and Joseph's sons what tribe they were from. But they're numbered now with males around about 600,000 in Egypt. And Pharaoh, as we are told, knew not Joseph, it says in the authorised version. And we embark on a period of the most appalling, yes, I have to say, atrocities, I think years can play a trick on us. I think that when we can see dreadful things done on the news, appalling atrocities that we see, whether it's in Aleppo with barrel bombing of civilians, we feel, don't we, the abhorrence. We know it. But somehow when you teach of how a pharaoh is so callous and cynical that he's prepared to sacrifice children, male children born of the Israelites, just purely for his own purpose. When it happened three and a half thousand years ago, we feel we're entitled to teach children in Sunday school, eight-year-olds, about that sort of thing. And we, we learn about how Moses was hidden in the bulrushes because the, the mother was so desperate to see him protected from Pharaoh's vengeance. Moses and Caleb must have known that they were in something that we would now recognise as Holocaust thinking, in that the Pharaoh was so cynical, he wanted to put the Israelites to hard work making bricks is because of what he needed them to feed his huge building programme. And he's weighing in the balance on the one hand of how he can get the economic maximum out of the children of Israel, yet cynically he's prepared to slaughter innocent children born to Israelites. He's verging on the genocide because he's so paranoid that they may actually take over control. So Caleb emerges from something that actually is terrifying. He's a man that sees what's going on around him. He, as I say, was born into that very last period when their backs were to the wall. 
Um, he would have been much the same age, for example, as Moses. So we can see that Caleb, and just to spring the, the punchline, later on God, in discussing Caleb with Moses, points out to Moses, Caleb is a man of a different spirit. I don't have time to talk about what that means. We know that in Joel, God predicted a time when he would pour out his spirit on all flesh, and I believe we're in that time now when we all may know the Holy Spirit within us showing us God. But things somehow seemed to work differently in those days. One thing's for sure, the spirit of God was in Caleb, and he would have been pleading with God that his kinsmen would be delivered from Egypt. Just picking out other bits that (laughs) occur randomly through my notes, I think it's worth just while pausing around issues of the plagues. You know, these things we know about, as I say, from our Sunday school days. And I must confess that when I was a kid, you know, I was learning about things like a plague of frogs, and I thought that sounded rather fun. I quite like frogs. But it's revisiting it, and it's sort of discovering that actually things are kind of, if you like, uh, pressures are being brought to bear on Pharaoh in modest and simple ways. A plague of flies, well, you get flies, don't you? I mean, around the Nile, you could expect that sort of thing, and you could expect a lot of frogs every now and then. The non-turn to blood, well, okay, maybe people, rationalists, would explain that away too. And then there were locusts. Well, you do get locusts. But Caleb, seeing these things, might have spotted that something was afoot. Moses certainly saw it. And in a funny sort of way, it's the same sort of issue that we ponder now. You're thinking, is this God at work? Is there something expedient that is running here? Or do we just shrug it off? And it's quite possible that for the children of Israel who observed this, they just decided, well, they just got lucky. Caleb knew it was different. He was a man of a different spirit. And Caleb would have faithfully and with care and concern considered the first Passover. He would have made sure that a lamb was slaughtered and the blood smeared over the door of his home. And he would have seen in it something special and miraculous where perhaps children of Israel did it because Moses had told them to. With the Exodus, we of course then embark on what is two and a bit years of quite an interesting period in the uh, history of the children of Israel. But, you know, just to pause as they are actually finding their way, and just to think again, the logistics of this, this is a population that is about to actually come out of Egypt. This is, this is a population numbered in seven figures. This crazy man called Moses, he's standing out the front of them waving his staff. 
and they're walking across a big riverbed. And then they look over the shoulder and they see that Pharaoh, who has now changed his mind, he wants the Israelites back because his building program is at risk. He sees the, they see the horsemen and the chariots absolutely wiped out with inundation. And the children of Israel may well have thought, well, yeah, we got lucky again. And Caleb didn't see it that way. He saw the awesome power of God. The dreadful consequence of living as Pharaoh did. Those that live by the sword die by it. But as we get into the wilderness, things don't turn out as Caleb had hoped. Logistically, to actually have that many people in a desert is astonishing. How to get water, how to get food. The dreadful and the terrible thing is that the children of Israel, they are inclined to see this as though God were just another Pharaoh. That just as Pharaoh had exacted his revenge on them as a people, that now God had somehow secured their release so that actually he could kill them off in the desert. That was what the Israelites were seeing. They thought, how can God do this to us? And it took Moses and the likes of Caleb to point out, no, have faith. And it is astonishing what what, what happened in the desert in those two years. It is miraculous. (laughs) I mean, manna. This crazy stuff that appears in the desert and it's nutritious, for heaven's sake. And, uh, yeah, the Israelites, they accept that. Thank you very much. But they're actually fed up with it. They got bored with this beautiful, perfectly balanced diet that just appears in the desert in the morning. And they're crying out, but we want meat. (laughs) They want meat and two veg. They're not rejoicing that God is actually leading them somewhere like a promised land. They're actually worried because they're missing the home comforts. And do you know, sometimes I even <laughs> I wonder if God does have a sense of humour. Because we interpret quails as quails, but I should warn you that actually species are difficult to interpret from Hebrew into modern English. We don't know what these birds were, but obviously thousands of migrant birds are obviously blown off course and they all drop into the camp in their thousands. And yeah, the children of Israel, they get meat. They get meat far more than they could could, could have wished for. They were almost complaining about the meat. So it is the fact, it's the tragedy that when Caleb is seeing the miraculous hand of deliverance, the children of Israel just don't get it. They just think they're getting lucky from time to time. Um, 
just to move on, yes, that two years, that, that was a significant period, and obviously the, the tabernacle was set up. They, they were extraordinary things, the way God led them with some sort of cloud and, and fiery pillar. Amazing times. The tabernacle was set up and rituals um, were um, put in place. And Moses got the law from Sinai. The point is that what Moses was expecting was that actually very swiftly, after two years, he would now be delivering the children of Israel straight into the promised land. But actually things don't quite turn out that way. Again, it's because of unbelief. If I just collect my thoughts. It's the fact that, by the way, the account on the appointment of the spies differs slightly if you read it in Numbers as opposed to reading it in Deuteronomy. In Numbers, it's explained that God told Moses to uh, recruit spies, 12 spies, one from each tribe, so that they could spy out the land. In Deuteronomy, it's slightly different. This is Moses, before his demise, setting out his recollections, and, and Moses actually thinks it's slightly different from that. He thinks that the spies were actually um, the request of the children of Israel. They actually were quite, thought it was quite daunting that actually now they were to be walking in on Canaan. And they thought it would be a good idea to actually stake the place out. So who can say? But you can kind of understand that could well be. There's a certain ring of truth in that, that the children of Israel wanted spies. Now, Caleb had been rising through the ranks in, Ju- in Ju- the tribe of Judah, He was becoming respected because he was calm. He hasn't appeared to us yet, by the way. He's still anonymous. But it's Judah that actually put him forward as being their spy. And, uh, yeah, I I now lose more of my sermon notes because you've already seen it on the cartoon. It's an extraordinary little piece. As I say, we won't look at it again, but you will remember it. It's the fact that the spies are to actually go and just suss out the place. Forty days they were to be there exactly and they were to come back. And by golly they did. When they came back, by the way, they were bringing pomegranates and great chunks of of grapes and all the rest of it. Now you can imagine, if you were in the desert, in the wilderness, just to see this stuff turning up, being brought out of the land, wouldn't your mouth water? And they were all unanimous. (coughs) This is a most remarkable land. It flows, and they came up with the term, it's flowing with milk and honey. How can you imagine such a perfect description of this new land? But it's the fact that thereafter, ten of the spies say that you can forget it. Don't bother. Elect a captain to take us straight back to Egypt because we're dead. There's no chance of us taking this land. These guys are giants. We're like grasshoppers. You saw that in the, in the, in the clip. 
Now, I should explain that, that there were ten who said that. There were two spies who were thinking differently. We've forgotten the name of the ten. I can't even pronounce them if I try to read them to you. The two that were all for actual immediate occupation of the promised land were Caleb and Joshua. Joshua, who'd been put forward by the tribe of Ephraim, I think it was, um, he'd already emerged as something of a military commander. He was seen as management material. The interesting thing is that when Moses was asking for the report back from the spies, it's quite clear in the record that the ten do their bit and the people are weeping and howling at the thought of what's ahead of them. They've had two dreadful years in the wilderness and now they're thinking of going back to Egypt. It's Caleb that speaks out, not Joshua. Caleb, from his soul, is crying out, no, God can do this. Just have faith in him. Joshua merely concurs. He, he later on, he agrees. He thinks that is the right way to do, but to go. But you can almost see that Joshua, he's probably thinking about crowd control. <laughs> or he's thinking about military tactics that he's going to employ to actually take the promised land. It's Caleb who speaks from his soul. He believes and trusts totally in God. It's, he's a man of a different spirit. He's seen everything that's gone on, whether it's flies coming in from, from the Nile, whether it's the walk through, the, through a, 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 a dry, what appears to be a dry riverbed, whether it's manna, water from a rock, quails flying in. He somehow has this way where now it's deeply embedded in him that God is so gracious. God can do this. We just trust him. The intriguing bit is that, of course, actually, God is exasperated. He doesn't know what more he can do. And he accepts that he has not procured a people that will worship him and love him and trust him and that he can work with. And he accepts that tragically they will die in the desert. And the truth is that out of all the people that came out of Egypt, let's be clear about it, people numbering in seven figures... There are only two that to go into the promised land. Not even Moses and Aaron made it. It was only Caleb and Joshua. They were the only two. And it's daunting when you think about it that Caleb, despite his faithful proclamation, God is with us, let's go, is Caleb who also is condemned to another 38 years in the wilderness. Is he bitter? No. 
when you read that last bit, and we heard it in the, in the passage that was read to us, how he's declaring that he's now 85 years old. He still hasn't got his promise from God. It doesn't matter to him. He knows that God will deliver it to him. Even though it's coming rather later than he, he would have wished for. He accepts graciously his position. There's no sign of bitterness. And finally, at the age of 85, he comes into his inheritance. By the way, I don't know, I think it's probably, I've just got time just to point out. He gets full of rhetoric. I mean, I'm now 69 and I'm facing 70 and I'm finding that I can't lift the weights that I could once. It's very disappointing, you know, when you find that you're losing yet more hair and your teeth are going. And Caleb comes out with that wonderful piece about he's still feeling fit, you know. I mean, I think, I'm afraid that's, that is just the bravado of a 69-year-old and, in his case, an 85-year-old. We're not as strong as we were. He's talking about how I'm going I'm I'm to take possession of my land. The fact is, of course, we know very well that he offered his daughter in marriage to the first warrior that would come along to actually rid his land of the squatters so that he could take possession. Now, it's not politically correct to be offering your daughter in marriage to a warrior in those circumstances, but remember that Caleb was trusting God, and as luck would have it, the young warrior that stepped forward was Othniel. Whoa! It was Othniel who claimed his daughter's hand in marriage. And, of course, you know that now they were about to embark on this extraordinary regime under the judges of Israel. That marvellous gang of, of Gideon and Samson and Deborah. Othniel was the first. So I just actually sign off with the fact. What do we learn from all of this? What should it mean to us It's the fact that Caleb, he's actually a small part in many respects. He doesn't make it to the roll call of the faithful in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, we read about the great, the Abel and Noah and Moses. Caleb isn't mentioned. There's just one moment when out of his soul, he sides for God against people that are pessimists who just don't see it. So in a sense, what do we learn from it? He's overshadowed at the beginning of his life by Moses. His colleague Joshua is the great hero that actually leads the conquest. And at the end of his life, bookended by Moses and Othniel, it's Othniel, his this first great judge of Israel that takes his daughter away. So in a sense, he's always been, he's not quite been Premier League, has he? But doesn't that make him a little bit like you and me? I'm never going to be parting a Red Sea. But we can be faithful to God by declaring that Jesus is Lord. No one can 
proclaim Jesus as Lord without the Spirit of God within him. And in our own way, we can all see a little bit of Caleb in us, praying for the right moment. We will speak out. We will share the miracle of what God has done for us in Jesus. And we do it without fear or favour. Am I out of time? How long have I got? Do you want me to finish? Another little thing, I mean, I could go on. I'll warn you, I could go on. It occurs to me, I'll tell you what, I will then be very quick. Do you know, archaeology is a fascinating thing. Do you know that um, it was in the late 1880s that they discovered the Amarna letters or the Amarna tablets? Who knows about the Amarna letters? Hands up. There you go, yeah, some know about it. Right, there are some in the British Museum. Uh, There's one or two in the Cairo Museum. Um, The point is that in Egypt, under the sand they found in cuneiform on tablets diplomatic correspondence from this period. Your heart goes out to our governor, in, in our ambassador in Washington, doesn't it? Because he thinks he can actually say stuff to the government about this dysfunctional um, government, this dysfunctional Donald Trump. And thanks to encryption that would have defeated Bletchley Park, he can get away with it. Well, actually, what he should have done is write in cuneiform on clay tablets because um, he was in with the chance of it being hidden for three and a half thousand years. We are privileged because we can now read some of the diplomatic correspondence that was going on between the kings and Cana and Pharaoh. It's actually there And it's actually, incredibly, kings of Cana, first of all doing obeisance to Pharaoh and calling for his help against the Bedouin. Um, The the term used is, is, it's similar to Hebrew. Um, Etymologically, it's the same. And there's this, there's Habiru. Um, it's, It's almost certainly referring to the children of Israel. But all I need to say is this. Get the hierarchy. The, the, the people in Canaan that the children of Israel so much fear are second tier. They bend the knee to Pharaoh. God has done the big work. He's done the big piece. To actually get a million people right out from under Pharaoh, the superpower in the region, that was the tough bit. Everything else is downhill. So I just sign off by saying, are our lives a bit the same? God puts in our heart the Holy Spirit and he delivers us through the most amazing death and resurrection of Jesus. And then as we rejoice in our newfound faith, we're then troubled by all the minor issues that hang around our ears afterwards. Small stuff. And today, if you're worrying about things, domestic things, employment, finances, 
None of it is of consequence compared with the love of God that he's shown us in Jesus. In all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. For I'm certain that nothing can separate us from his love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor other heavenly rules or powers, neither the present nor the future, neither the world above nor the world below. There's nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.